Welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. My name is Jody Lima, and on this twice-monthly podcast, hosted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Stephen Banks. Uh, Stephen is author of the Middle School Bites book series, and we're going to be talking about his latest book in the series, Middle School Bites Out for Blood. We're also going to be talking about his favorite children's book, which is Henry Huggins, written by the great Beverly Cleary. Uh, One quick note, Uh, Stephen mentions a book, uh, but he couldn't remember the author's name, and the book is I Want My Hat Back, and the author illustrator is John Klassen. Uh, Just so you're aware of that. Now, just like my last podcast, after the interview with Stephen, I would like you to stick around for something a little bit different. As I've mentioned a few times now, my debut middle grade novel, Hushabye, is coming out on August 24th. And on the last podcast, I read the first two chapters of the book. Today, I'm going to be reading chapters three and four. And I'm going to be finishing up on the next podcast with chapters five and six. And like I said last time, if you just want to listen to my interview with Stephen, that's no problem. But if you want to hear a little bit more of the story that I hope you'll enjoy, or at least find a little creepy, please keep listening. And of course, if you want to hear chapters one and two, please go back to the podcast I did with Ben Zhu on July 19th. My guest today is Stephen Banks. Stephen was a writer for such shows as SpongeBob SquarePants, The Adventures of Jimmy Neutron, and CatDog. He's also author of the Middle School Bites book series, including the books Middle School Bites, Middle School Bites, Tom Bites Back, and coming on August 31st, the third book in the series, Middle School Bites Out for Blood. You can find information about the whole Middle School Bites series at www.penguinrandomhouse.com and search Middle School Bites. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Stephen. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, before we get to the latest book, I wonder if we could start with uh, talking a little bit about the main character of these books, Tom Marks, and his, let's say, very unique situation for a middle school boy. Yes. The day before he starts middle school, which he's a tad nervous about and worried because it's very different from elementary school, he has the bad fortune to be bitten by a vampire, a werewolf, and a zombie. And he becomes a vam wolf zom. So not only does he have to deal with the rigors of middle school and seven different classes and seven different teachers and lockers and PE and gym and, you know, all this crazy stuff, uh, he has to deal with something very strange. But she finds out very quickly what happened to him. But then he has to deal with a lot of odd things going on. And what was the inspiration for you for developing this character in his very particular circumstances? Well, at first I thought, what if, what if a kid got bitten by the three classic biters, which are a vampire, a werewolf, and a zombie? I thought, what would happen if you were like made up one-third each of those? And I, I did a lot of research. They hadn't done that yet. There have been combos of vampires and werewolves and so forth. But there had never been a, a vam-wolf-zom, which I think I coined that phrase. And I thought, boy, that would be a lot to handle. And also, as I progressed with it, I thought, you know, when you're that age, you're 11, 12, whatever, sometimes you feel, you know, you have that crazy energy like a werewolf and you're almost howling at the moon. Uh, Sometimes you're very slothful and zombie-like, very hungry and just moping along slowly. And But sometimes you also feel kind of cool like a vampire. So it felt like it was a good time for that to happen to a kid, you know, adolescence and so forth uh, coming in. And uh, I thought, oh, this is a good situation for a lot of funny and strange things to happen. As I was thinking, uh, even though it's a very unique situation, uh, it's also a very relatable one because a lot of middle schoolers feel like they're torn between many different directions at the same time and don't quite know who they are. Oh, no, no, definitely. That's what that is. It's finding out who you are and, and during that time period, and this sort of amplifies it. Now, like I said, the third book in the series, which is coming out, is called Middle School Bites Out for Blood. Uh, and can you talk about uh, what is happening in this latest book with Tom? Well, in the latest one, in number three, uh, number two ends with him meeting the werewolf that bit him at the end of 
the first book, he meets the vampire who bit him, who turns out to be a 13-year-old girl who was turned in 1776 and actually knew Benjamin Franklin. So she's able to help him with his some of his Revolutionary War homework. And then at the end of number two, uh, it ends with the cliffhanger of him meeting the werewolf. And so number three, Out for Blood, takes off right when he meets the werewolf who is named Darkort. And uh, first he's a little frightened, but then he turns out to be not quite what he thought it would be. And it takes him through the adventures of meeting him and also Christmas and a uh, Christmas or a holiday pageant they do. And a whole section where his, uh, his very valuable, though he doesn't know it, action figure that he uses in a little shoebox diorama as Emily Dickinson. And it gets stolen. And he sort of uses some of the powers in a way he sort of has superpowers in a way because he has incredible hearing now he has night vision he can hypnotize people that are willing to be hypnotized and he has a lot of strength he's much stronger so he does have some essentially superpowers or powers he can use searching finding out solving this mystery and dealing with what happened when he loses this uh, very unique action figure that isn't quite what it seems to be and uh, like i said he deals with the holidays he deals with christmas and there's there's a lot going on. <laughs> They're fast-paced adventures. Oh yes, I had the chance to read the uh, the first one, which I enjoyed very much. And you're right, it, it goes very fast. And it's very they're very funny books too, as well. And uh, can you share a part of the book for us? Sure. I'll uh, let's. Why not do the first little chapter that's quite short for <laughs> middle school bites? So uh, it's called a strange conversation. I was talking to a werewolf. It was the same werewolf who bit me two and a half months ago, a few hours after I'd been bitten by a vampire bat and a few hours before a zombie bit me. That all happened the day before middle school. I'm probably the most unlucky kid who ever lived, the world's only Van Wolf Zom. Now it was Thanksgiving weekend. I was at Graham's house with mom, dad, and unfortunately my big sister, Emma. I almost ate the whole turkey at dinner because I was zombie starving. Since it was a full moon, I'd turned into a werewolf, and I decided to go for a run in the woods. I stopped to get a drink from a stream, and that's when I saw the werewolf crouched on the other side. I hadn't seen him since he'd bitten me, but I knew it was him right away. Martha Livingston, the vampire who turned me into a vampire, had told me his name was Darkort. He looked like a regular wolf and walked on all fours. I walk upright on my two legs like a human when I'm a werewolf, which I've only been six times so far. Darkheart was gray and white, with very large, very sharp, and very white teeth. He was basically big and terrifying, and he looked like he could rip my throat out. But this was a chance to talk to another werewolf. I had a million questions, but he didn't look like he wanted to talk. He looked like he wanted to leap across the stream and eat me. I wasn't going to wait and find out. I was about to turn into a bat and fly away when he spoke. Good evening, he said in a low, gruff, serious voice. He sounded exactly like a werewolf that was about to attack. I got ready to turn into a bat, and then he said, I'm just messing with you. How's it going, wolf? It didn't sound like he was going to attack me anymore, but I wasn't sure. Sometimes you meet people, and they're nice and friendly, and then later on you find out they're not. Like the first time I met Tanner Gant, one of the worst people in the world. We were in third grade, and he pretended to be nice for about five minutes, and then he punched me and laughed. Plus, Martha Livingston had said the darker was dangerous, and if I ever saw him, I should run. Wait a minute, he said. I've seen you before. About two months ago, you were jogging down the road, and I bit you on the ankle. I hey, I didn't know you were a kid until I got up close. I usually go for adults. More meat. I just saw you running down the road, and I saw dinner. But then that big truck came by and flashed its high beams in my eyes, honking its horn. I didn't know what was going to happen. Maybe Mr. Truck Driver might stop. Maybe he's got some silver bullets. I had to get out of there, so all I got was a bite. But, hey, better I turn you into a werewolf then than eat you, right? Then we wouldn't be hanging out. Was he ever going to stop talking? Anyway, I'll stop there. So they do have quite a conversation, and Tom does get to answer him, to ask him some pertinent questions about being a werewolf. Sounds like a very genial werewolf. Well, he is, but but even first impressions there aren't quite aren't quite what Tom expects. Is and there's some there's some twists and turns as it proceeds. Oh, I forgot to mention uh, the illustrations are by Mark Fearing, correct? Yes, yes. Mark Fearing does the illustrations, which it's really fun because you get to see what Tom looks like, which was very difficult to do because he's one third all of those things, but he's not like hideous, but 
you can tell something's going on. He does have fangs, and uh, he does have a little bit of that zombie look. He's quite pale. Uh, but you get, of course, to see Darker the Wolf, and you get to see Martha Livingston the Vampire, and uh, Tom's also his assortment of friends, which he has a very interesting and unique sort of gang of friends. So this being the third book, uh, and you've got a series going here, are there any plans, or do you think about, you know, I'm not quite done with Tom Marks yet? Well, you never know. There could be. It's... Uh, I mean, it could even go into something uh, down the road as he gets older. It could be a big jump where it's suddenly high school bites uh, and he grows up. You know, all, uh, it was interesting in the Harry Potter series to see him age and the rest of the characters as they went on. So as as a character ages, different things happen to them. And so, uh, yeah, there's a lot. We I allude to things in this in this book of possible possibly bigger stories going on there's a very important book that martha livingston the vampire uh, uh has lent him uh, called a vampiric education which teaches him things like how to turn into smoke and do all these other things which aren't easy and dark Heart, the uh werewolf would very much like to get his hands on that to share it with the council of werewolves or the council of shapeshifters which are even more dangerous but that being said the books are really all about the everyday events of middle school. But there's that twist because, you know, Tom, our lead character has, um, you know, is a Van Wolf Psalm. So there's, uh, it's all that, you know, school, homework, tests, all those things, but with a slight twist. I imagine it's fun too to explore different aspects of a character, get them in different situations and to kind of build, you know, on this world that you've created too. Oh, it's great. I mean, that that's what's so fun is to have that happen. His interaction with his other, you know, schoolmates. There's a the Arthur Miller, the author of the play Death of a Salesman, just happens to be my favorite play. But there's a character there called Willie Loman, who's the main character. And as he was writing it, he would he would say to himself, what can I what can I do to Willie Loman today? What can I make happen to him today? And that's a good uh, tact for a writer to take because you want conflict. You want to throw things at your uh, at your main character and then see how they deal with it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Now, I, I do have to uh, ask uh, this one question. As I mentioned earlier, along with the writing the, the Middle School Bites books, uh, at a time you were a writer for SpongeBob SquarePants, and both mine and my son were are big fans of that. I guess they were, but we still are. And I'm just just a general question. What was his experience writing for such a like an iconic series and an iconic character as SpongeBob? It was fun. I was a huge fan. I, I was head writer on seasons four, five, six, seven, and eight. And so I was on the show for six years. And so I was already a fan. So to me, it was really exciting and, to be honest, an honor to work on a show like that. And it was uh, run by Paul Tibbet, who was running the show by that time. At that point, Steve Hillenberg, the creator, had left the show, though he did touch base on, uh, you know, to make sure we were keeping up, keeping up the level. And that was, that was the big thing for us was keep, keep it at that level, keep it good, keep it funny. The basic sort of mantra to me was simple and silly. And that's very difficult to do. It's writing. And I don't mean simple, like simpleton, like that thing way, but just keeping plots and stories and the character, you know, being very true to the characters. And there aren't that many characters in SpongeBob. It's not, it's not like the Simpsons where there's like, you know, 40 characters, you're writing for a very small cast. And uh, you, of course, don't want to repeat what has already happened. You have to keep coming up with new stories. But a lot of things we would take from real life. One time, one of the writers came in and said, oh, my kid, you know, had had picture day and, you know, hated, didn't want to get their picture taken. It was just talking. I said, oh, my gosh, that's a great story. So we did an episode. But I said, stay true to the character of SpongeBob. SpongeBob would love to have his picture taken at boating school and so the whole let's do a twist so the whole story was about him getting all shined and he looked fabulous he had his his shirt was all pressed he looked great and he left and then things kept happening to him on the way to school where he'd get messed up and get dirty and get mud on him and so it was very frustrating so we would take things from real life from our past experiences or sometimes just silly things like one I wrote called where Squidward actually got the door accidentally slammed in his face by SpongeBob. And then instead of getting a big bruise, he actually turned handsome and then it slammed again and he got even more handsome. 
he just and then of course it was great people women were everyone was he was were attracted to him and going up to him but then it became too much and he couldn't stand all the uh, uh attention he was getting so he had to figure out a way to get back to his normal look so i had a fantastic time working on that show it was a great crew the the, the storyboard artists and uh the other writers i oversaw a crew of about five other writers and uh it was you know a lot of work but it was fun because it's you know, I mean, it is a classic show. There's no two ways about it. Oh, yes. Well, it's kind of interesting that in both uh, that show and Middle School Bites, that they, you know, they're sometimes absurd situations or ridiculous things happen, but it's always based in, you know, something that it might actually happen, you know, in real life. So there's always got to be that kind of basis of uh, reality, even in the most absurd situations. Yeah, that it helps. It helps to start in a real situation, then you can exaggerate. And the great thing in animation, especially SpongeBob, you could stretch him and have his face or have him look hundred years old all of a sudden, or just his eyes fall out and he could just pop them back in. But the thing was keeping, you know, true to his emotions and his character as with all the other characters, which were very well defined. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about characters, whether it's a book, TV show, a movie, a play, it's all about the characters you want to spend time with, whoever they are. And speaking of characters we want to spend time with, uh, one of your own particular uh, favorite books, uh, it kind of revolves around a character as well, is Henry Huggins, which was written by Beverly Cleary. And this book was published in 1950. Uh, for readers who are either unfamiliar with Henry Huggins or maybe it's been a while since they had a chance to read the book, can you talk a little bit of what it is and what it's about? It was very hard. That the question was, "What's your favorite children's book?" And so, this isn't what I think is the best children's book, though it's it's right up there. It is one of my, and it's the first book that really I loved reading it. I loved the idea of just having a book and reading it, and I wanted to be Henry Huggins. He's a third grader, and he has a series of adventures. It's very episodic, very realistic. Beverly Cleary, she was a librarian when she wrote it. There's a famous story. She was a librarian. These kids came in and they said, where are the books about kids like us? And there really weren't. There were fairy tales. There were wild adventures. But there wasn't a show. There wasn't a, 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 a books about sort of regular normal kids. So she sat down and wrote this book. It, it just appealed to me. So I wanted to be Henry Huggins. He In one chapter, he buys guppies, these little fish. And I asked my mother, and it was very nice. My mother and father, they went out and bought me guppies. So I got two little guppies <laughs> in a bowl. And he had a dog uh, named Ribsy, which he gets, which plays an important part. And it just, oh, and on cue, my dog is barking. Isn't that appropriate? Perfect. My dog is named Muffin. It's a bulldog. And so it, it just, I loved reading. And I just reread re re it before we had this conversation and, you know, it totally holds up, but it's about a boy, third grader and these adventures. And there's all this conflict. He has to have all he gets into all these dilemmas and so forth that he has to figure out a way. He loses this kid's football and he suddenly has to figure out how to buy the kid a new football. He gets this dog and he's got to figure out how to get it home and he can't take it on the bus because you can't have dogs on the bus. And also, the other thing about it, which is great, which actually is a series I didn't read till I was adult, which... I th are just to me are some of the it, honestly, and I'm not being facetious. I think one of the great characters in American literature is Ramona, which is a series that Beverly Cleary also wrote. And she just nails a kindergarten kid and how they think perfectly. I mean, those, if you haven't read them, if you're an adult, read them. If you're kids, please read them and also read Henry Huggins because it's wonderful. But Ramona makes a very brief, brief appearance as the, uh, the, the young sister, but I read them as an adult and I could just appreciate them as a writer, but she gets so into the head of a, of a kid as she does in Henry Huggins. And there also, you know, there's a woman who's writing about a young boy, but I just, I just love that book. I can picture it. I bought it, you know, the scholastic book sale where you'd buy your little books and then they would, you'd have to wait like four or five weeks for them to come and they'd bring them a little box and packages and Henry Huggins, I just, I identified with him, not a hundred percent, but enough stuff I could experience. I said, boy, I know what that would be like. And she was able to really get into the head of a kid, of a boy. And it starts off, you know, right, right from the gate in, in, in the first chapter, I can read just like the first page. She really gets, you know, nails like it's called Henry and ribs. 
And she goes, Henry Huggins was in the third grade. So right away, we know who he is. It's a great name, Henry Huggins. And we know, you know, the basic age. His hair looked like a scrubbing brush. And most of his grown-up front teeth were in. He lived with his mother and father in a square white house on Clicky Tat Street. Except for having his tonsils out when he was six and breaking his arm falling out of a cherry tree when he was seven, nothing much happened to Henry. I wish something exciting would happen, Henry often thought. But nothing very interesting ever happened to Henry, at least not until one Wednesday afternoon in March. So right away, boom, you know what the character wants. You know that he doesn't think anything really is interesting happened, but something is going to happen. And it does when he finds this this stray dog and goes into all sorts of shenanigans with it. And Ribsy the dog, because he's very thin, plays a big part, especially up to the end. And I don't think this is a real spoiler where he has them for almost a year. And then all of a sudden out of the blue, Ribsy's real owner appears, a boy who's a little bit older. And there's this very dramatic scene where and it's they have to decide, well, who is the dog going to go to? And I remember this just as a kid, you know, Ribsy's in the middle. And so what they decide is Henry will go down one end of the block and the other kid will go down the other. And they'll both call. They're calling and it's who and they say, OK, whoever Ribsy goes to gets to keep him. And it's a very dramatic scene. The other kids are there watching. Ramona's there watching. And, uh, it, you know, just that's what I remembered so much as a kid, a very, very powerful scene because you've been invested in the character of Henry and you care about him. It's, anyway, it's, it's, it's a wonderful book. It really is. It, it's interesting. Each of the chapters, um, it's, it's almost like you said, it's a sort of episodic, although the last chapter does kind of uh, go back to the beginning. Right. But in each one, there's this problem. Sometimes it's self-created problem. And part of the fun is finding in each chapter, he has to find a solution, which is sometimes surprising. It occasionally happens by accident. I wonder if that's one of the appeals of the book, because each chapter is like its own little book with a, a conflict and a problem and a solution by the end of the chapter as well. And that has a certain appeal for well, it does. I think for young readers, I, I think it does have an appeal. And I, I, to me, when people go, oh, the book or the movie was like about something, you know, they complain, like a critic says, it's episodic. If they're great episodes, it doesn't matter. You have the consistency of the same character. And I think for kids reading, it's great because you're like, wow, he did that. What's the next adventure? And she does resolve it, each one. There's a great thing where he's in a Christmas pageant that he doesn't want to be in. And there's a really wonderful thing involving how that resolves with the dog and then when he's trying to get them dig up worms to pay for this football and, and there's a dog show and so forth and of course with the guppies but it's you you i think as, as a reader a young reader you get that satisfaction like oh, i finished this one now i can go to the next one or you can take a pause now beverly cleary the author who just died at what was it 102 103 100, something like that yeah it was crazy anyway she um she did not like the term reluctant reader because what she thought was, she thought, no, I think I don't think there are reluctant readers. I don't. Th I just think that that person hasn't found the book they want to read yet, which is great. And there are all sorts of different books. And I, I'm a firm believer in, you know, parents or kids deciding. It doesn't matter what they read. They're, you know, whether it's uh, about sports or drama or 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 fishing or a dog or it's or it's fantasy or science fiction or whatever. You know, just get them in that habit of reading, find a subject they're interested in. They may not think they don't want to read, but let's say they're really into space or they're really into science or they're really into flowers or whatever it may be. And then find a book about that subject or about, a, let's say, a famous person. There's some wonderful short biographical books that are written for, you know, when early readers and so forth that are really interesting. I used to love to read those as a kid. I think a, a certain value for some readers too is um, uh, the problems that Henry deals with. They're sort of they're they're important to him, but they're kind of small p problems. And and I do think there's a value in middle school, in middle grade books that deal with serious themes and issues. But there can also be a value in books that deal about just kind of day to day ordinary little problems and how kids deal with that too. And that's that can be an appeal for a, a certain young reader as well. Oh, yeah. I, I think there should be all types of books. There's a great uh, Irish writer named Nick Hornby who said uh, he wrote The Commitments and, and, and High Fidelity, a wonderful writer. And he goes, why aren't all books as good as middle grade and YA books? He goes, why aren't adults books that good? He goes, they don't belabor points. They don't go into long descriptions. They get to the point. They're fast moving. They're entertaining. 
And I think he makes a very good point. I've really enjoyed as an adult reading some middle grade books that, that I had never read before or discovered. And there's nothing about, oh, that's, that's for young people. You shouldn't read it. I think that's completely false and ridiculous because you're, you're, uh, an adult is not getting in on that. There's the, I mean, the Harry Potter series is a great example, but there's a wonderful book called a book series called the incorrigible children of Ashton place by Mary, Mary Rose Wood. And it's fantastic for middle grade readers, but she writes so beautifully her sentences. She's on a par with, with the PG Woodhouse, the great English writer, as far as comic really truly funny lines and it's just a wonderful adventure about a 14 year old governor 15 year old governess who has to teach these kids who are literally raised by wolves in sort of victorian england people forget that when catcher in the rye was published by jd salinger it was published just as a novel there was no such category as ya or young adult it just happened to be about a kid that was that age and so for me it doesn't matter i think there are a lot of great books middle grade books that are very heavy that that or not heavy, that's probably the wrong word, but do address serious subjects, which I think is great. There's a lot of those, but I think at the same time, and, and some of my goal in writing the books, I do make points in them. I mean, middle, the Middle School Bite series is our, our fun, entertaining series, and they're supposed to, you know, they're fast moving, they're page turners. Uh, I think there are some people who are reluctant readers, sorry, Beverly Cleary, that, that they would appeal to. But at the same time, I do make points in there. They're not, I don't hit them really, you know, with a sledgehammer and so forth about fitting in. I think kids who do feel different can identify because this is a kid who is extremely different, but he's figuring out how to fit into school, what to do, what's important. It, there's a lot of stuff about friendship in there. And I think, you know, you can, you know, a master of entertaining funny books would be, of course, pretty hard to beat Mark Twain's Samuel Clemens as far as writing really entertaining funny books but he's making points all the time same thing with Kurt Vonnegut who was an, another master at that where you can write these fast moving I'm not putting myself on their level but I think there's a way to do that where you can sneak these things in with humor and you really make the point uh, in you know uh, about you know certain subjects so that's that that in a way is my, you know, is my goal. And to me, there's nothing wrong with a completely entertaining, you know, funny, silly book. I think, you know, that because that's very, very, very difficult to do. In fact, I think it's harder to write a truly funny book than uh, I mean, it's hard to write a book, period. But the comedy, as, as they say on a tombstone, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. Being able to draw readers in, whether it's humor or a scary situation, and then going from there to deal with character and, you know, like I said, in, in your case, middle school and what all the different sort of uh, conflicts that go on in there. But uh, you want to find some way to be able to draw the reader in in the first place. You don't you want to um, give them something that they're that uh, is appealing and is going to uh, make them want to keep on reading so they you know, find out more about this character and the problems and think about, you know, the things they're dealing with in their own lives. Oh, exactly. I mean, that's why, you know, one of the greatest characters ever is Spider-Man, because when he starts, he's a kid. And it was the first one to have just a normal, geeky, nerdy kid become suddenly have these powers. And how do you handle that? What do you do? The best superheroes in that way do that. It was a big thing with Stan Lee, who actually I was able to meet because I worked on a project with him. And actually, I'm currently working on uh, an animated series called I wrote over, over the pandemic, I was glad to be employed, and I wrote 26 half hours, a Stan Lee superhero kindergarten, which starred Arnold Schwarzenegger, and um, about an uh, ex-superhero that is, uh, that is hired to teach a kindergarten class that has these kids that are all superheroes. And he's teaching them not only kindergarten, but also how to be superheroes. And it's on the Cartoon Channel on YouTube, but, and, but it was great. It was really fun to write those uh, episodes and also our our the director we had unfortunately got COVID they've recovered but I was able to direct Arnold in eight of the episodes uh, it was all done on Zoom and so forth but that was quite fun to do that and he was total pro great great sense of humor about himself and the shows were written for adults and kids which in a way I sort of do with middle school bites I mean there are things in there that an adult would get not that they're filled with you know references there are there's some very subtle ones there's some only i would get 
but there's um, or a small group would get. But there are things thrown in there because I always thought, you know, I'd want a kid to certainly be able to sit down and read this, whether they were just about to go to middle school or they were in middle school or if they had experienced middle school. Because one of the biggest hits, of course, is um, Diary of a Wimpy Kid was originally written for adults when he started doing that online. He didn't think it'd be a kid's book. He thought it was like, oh, I'm going to do what it was like to be a kid in, in middle school, you know, um, Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And suddenly he hit the jackpot big time. It, it is interesting. And I always think, I always say a lot, you know, just a, a good book is just a good book. Uh, uh, whatever you're, you know, whether it's you're writing for kids or, or adults or whatever the case may be, or even a picture book, you know, um, if it's a good book, it's going to appeal to hopefully your target audience. But, you know, usually a good book is going to appeal to all sorts of people uh, as well, because some of my favorite books are books supposedly written for kids, but I still like reading them anyway. Oh, oh, yeah. It's, it is. I mean, I, I reread Charlotte's Web again. It's unbelievable. Uh, Alice in Wonderland. Treasure Island, I think, is one of the greatest books ever written. And talk about excitement and and just so thrilling. Uh, you know, you want to learn how to write action sequences in a thrilling adventure book. Treasure Island, you, you know, it's tough to beat Treasure Island. And he essentially, Robert Louis Stevenson, laid out Every trope about pirates that everybody does from now on is is in that book. It's fascinating to see that. But uh, yeah, no, you're right. Exactly. That's a good book is a good book. I mean, the books on my nightstand are always there's always a real mix of all sorts of stuff, you know, all sorts of ages. You're right. A good book is a good book. And Beverly Cleary is a, it just a, like you talked a little bit about her, uh, how she started out as an author. And it's, it's interesting in this podcast I do, this is like the, the third or fourth book that someone's picked out that was written by her. Uh, I think uh, Kate DeCamille is the only one who probably has as many books that people picked out as Beverly Cleary. And I'm just wondering, and you talked a little bit about this, uh, what, thinking of her just as a writer, um, what makes her special? as a writer for young people that other writers might also learn from what she does that, um, that just, it seems when you read it, it seems so simple, but it's not, uh, which is kind of a gift in itself. So what is it that she does? Well, she gets into the head of the character and her characters speak like their age. Now I know you can have a, a, a child of like Hermione Granger in, in, in Harry Potter is, is, is very smart. So she speaks a little more sophisticated, but one of the things that just drives me crazy is when they have middle grade, whatever age, and they're, 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 it's first person written in first person. So they're describing the book. I read one recently. I won't say who it is, what it is, but it just drove me crazy because I thought there is no way that kid would be using these words either in their dialogue or in their description of how someone is speaking. And so for me, and I try to do that in my books because my books are written in middle school bites in first person. And sometimes the grammar isn't correct. And sometimes he's not, he'll repeat words over and over, which is a technique of course is used. J.D. Salinger did it in Catcher in the Rye, but Beverly Cleary, especially in Ramona, she just, she, it's really from the, the point of view of a kindergartner. Now she's right. She's using words. It's not first person. It's Ramona isn't narrating the stories, but Beverly Cleary gets into the head so she can use terms a little more advanced of Ramona when she like is embarrassed and she hides behind these trash cans and doesn't want people to see her. And she just puts you there, her descriptions. And like you were saying, writing simple is so hard. I mean, same thing with Hemingway. People tried to write like Ernest Hemingway, but they didn't get it he wasn't just using simple words. There was a lot more. He was taking out everything that was unnecessary. And by sometimes taking out what's taking things out, you actually say more. But Beverly Cleary was such a master at writing simply but effectively where you really knew what was going on. And there's a great example, one of the Ramona books where <laughs> one of my favorite things is Ramona has brick factory that she does with her friend. And what they do, they get these old bricks and they just smash them with hammers and just like essentially break them down and destroy them. And her sister Beezus is like, oh, Ramona, why do you call it Brick Factory? You're not making bricks. It would be Brick Factory if you were making bricks, but you're, you're breaking them. You're destroying them. And Ramona doesn't care. And she just sits there with Howie, her friend, 
smashing these, you know, bricks, which is I could I could totally see doing that. And for her age, that's what it's like. And Beverly Cleary was able it's it's very clear. So it's not you know, it's not not long descriptive phrases. There's a wonderful advice to writers by Raoul Dahl, one of the masters of novelists for adults and kids. Of course, you know, Willy Wonka and 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 Matilda and all the witches and so forth, where he says it's in one of the biographies I read about him where he just at one point, he never wrote like a how to or did a how to article, but in a brief thing, he answered this and he said, children do not like long descriptive, you know, uh, descriptions. He goes e- on each page. You must have something new happening, something interesting, something funny, something scary. If you don't cross it out and start again, because you know, a child's mind, you know, will wander. You can't be excessive. And, I read that it's, there's about three paragraphs he writes um, on that, uh, and it's just gold. It's just perfect, and that's what Beverly Cleary does: is she keeps her plots moving and uh, gets so into the heads of uh, of the characters. And the Ramona books, yeah, start with the first Ramona book, and she's just this dynamic, feisty, fiery little girl. The the, the, the term which is overused a lot, fierce. But she is a fierce kid, <laughs> and she just is very, I mean, she gets into trouble, and she complains, and she's impatient, and she gets very upset, and her parents are very calm. Her mother's great. Her mother really knows how to handle her. Her sister gets very frustrated with her, uh, but she's this dynamic character that Beverly Cleary just nailed. And she said, they asked Beverly Cleary who her favorite character was, and she said it was Ramona. She loved Henry Huggins. It was her first book. But with Ramona, even when she stopped writing every once in a while, she would think, I wonder what Ramona would think of this, or I wonder what Ramona, how she would get in trouble in this situation, which I thought was great that it stayed with her long after she wrote because she had created, created this wonderful character. And, um, it's, it's exactly, it's, you mentioned picture books. It's re- picture. I tried once to do a picture book and that's, you know, sometimes you have 10 words on a page. Those, I think, are the hardest because there's so many bad ones. I mean, really bad ones. People think they're Dr. Seuss. Oh, I'll just rhyme and make up funny words. It ain't that easy. It's not just that. And one of the masters and his name, oh, it just escaped. He wrote, uh, where is my hat? Oh, and and I found a hat. Oh, if you can find out at the end who the right. And those are, he illustrates them and writes them. Um and he actually illustrated the first, I think, four uh, incorrigible children of Ashton Place books that Mary Rose Wood wrote. And then he got too big and famous, and I don't think they could afford him anymore. <laughs> that is just, yeah, yeah. Or like Shel Silverstein, The Learning Tree, those simple books where those, I mean, it's almost not po- like poetry, not in the sense of poetic, but every single word counts. And that, even an author in any book, even, you know, middle grade books or early reader books, whatever, but especially in, in picture books where there is, uh, there is, you know, words on the page, every word counts. And you, you have to be that way to be a good writer, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I've often said on this podcast, I think every writer, no matter what they write, should take try at least once to write a picture book. Even if they fail, they'll learn something about writing after they're done, uh, just from the experience. <laughs> Oh, it, it is. It's so, and you appreciate them so much that until you really write, that's as I've started writing books, that's what, cause I did a YA novel, uh, many kind of long, long time ago, 15 years ago called King of the Creeps and set in the early sixties about a kid that thinks he's nerdy looking has a big nose and curly hair and doesn't think girls like him. And he's all this stuff like that. And then he suddenly sees this cover of a Bob Dylan album and he thinks if I become a folk singer, girls will like me. And so he goes into New York this is in the early 60s, and buys a guitar. He learns one chord, but he ends up becoming folk singer through a bizarre comical situations and so forth. But as 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 you were saying, when, when once you write something and then you start reading books, then you really appreciate a good writer. And that's so true about the picture books. You try to write one, you will never look at a picture book the same <laughs> because and you and the ones that are the great ones really, you know, you know right away. Uh, that like, okay, you're in the hands of somebody that really knows what they're doing. Um, but that's, yeah, that's very good, vi- good advice. Cause you think it's simple. It's like, you know, they're like what 35 pages, 40 pages like that. It's simple things, but 
Oh, and then, of course, the illustrations are just as important and just as key in something like that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, Stephen, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me both about your own book, uh, The Middle School Bites uh, Out for Blood, and for talking to me about Henry Huggins and Beverly Cleary and just about writing in general. So thank you for taking the time to talk to me tonight. Oh, I loved it. You're you're very welcome. You ask good questions. I love to talk about books and writers and all that good stuff. You can find information about the whole Middle School Bite series at www.penguinrandomhouse.com and by searching for either Stephen Banks or Middle School Bites. Hushabye by Jody Lee Mott Chapter 3 Lucy, look! I think I see one falling. Do you see? Do you see? Antonia danced about in an early morning quilt of sunlight and shadow as she strained to look through the branches of the ginkgo tree. It's only the beginning of September. I shifted my backpack to get a better look. The fan-shaped leaves were still summer green. Too soon. A year ago, when we first moved into the trailer, we discovered the best thing about our new home was the tall ginkgo tree growing next to it. The only trees we'd had at our previous house were a couple of sour-looking crab apples. It had been near the end of October, so Antonia and I had started planning the leaf pile stunts we'd do once the leaves fell. We waited and waited almost the whole fall for the leaves to drop off the ginkgo tree. As the days and weeks went by, most of the other trees had shed their leaves bit by bit until they were bare as skeletons, but not the ginkgo. Its leaves didn't budge, not a single one, not even late in November. Then, one morning, a few days after Thanksgiving break, we stumbled out of our trailer to catch the school bus and discovered a neat circle of leaves around the trunk of the ginkgo. Its branches were completely bare. Somehow, they'd all fallen off overnight at exactly the same time. This year, I hoped we'd get lucky, and they'd all drop right when we were looking at it. But it was the first day back to school, so I didn't feel particularly lucky about anything. I tugged on the strap of Antonia's bulging backpack, the pink kitten one she'd had since third grade. The bus will be coming, I said. I don't want to be late. Antonia moaned, then tromped on toward the stop. I could see her straps were getting so frayed I wondered if they'd hold. It looked like she'd jammed in several of her precious treasures along with her school supplies. As long as she didn't bring the doll's head, that would be a step too far into Weirdville, even for Antonia. Despite my warnings that morning, the duckling barat still clung stubbornly to her head. She may as well have worn a kick-me sign. I wanted to be a protector, but my qualifications for that job were pretty thin. She'd be on her own in middle school. The barat was not a good start. I know it sounds mean, but sometimes I wished her brain was wired better. Even worse, there were some days I wished I didn't even have a sister. Our bus stop was the second one on the route, so like always, I grabbed the safe seat right behind the bus driver. Antonia jammed herself next to me, but I didn't mind. She didn't know it, but she was helping me. With her there, I could sit by the window and not worry about who might plop next to me. The icy fingers in my belly unclenched a little. Antonia slipped her backpack to the floor and craned her neck over the seat to spy down the back of the bus. This doesn't look any different from my old bus, she said, sounding a little disappointed. All buses are the same, I said in a quiet voice. What? Antonia shouted and whipped her head about. On the opposite seat, a sliver-thin blonde boy with a finger halfway up his nose squinched his eyes at her. I wrapped Antonia's thigh with the back of my hand. Stop yelling, I whispered. Antonia shot me a puzzled look, then folded her arms and slumped in her seat. I thought it was going to be bigger. The next two minutes passed quietly. The only sounds were the rumble of the bus, the wheezy breathing of the little blonde boy, and Antonia picking her teeth with her thumb. Two whole minutes. I tried to lose myself in those minutes like it was the last piece of time left in the world. If I ever got to heaven, and it turned out to be nothing more than a rattling bus ride with a skinny nose picker and my sister sucking at her teeth over and over again for eternity... I'd be okay with that. But happiness would have to wait. I was heading to middle school. Once the bus cleared the trailer park, 
The houses grew bigger, the evenly mowed lawns gleamed greener, and the number of rust-bucket cars like ours dwindled considerably. Soon the bus squealed to a halt, the door whooshed open, and a noisy pack of kids piled on. They all walked past Antonia and me. Most ignored us. A few made faces. None of them said hello. Neither did I. Antonia didn't seem to notice or care. She was too busy petting the red panda on her shirt. But then Gus Albero, a big lump of a boy who was always tearing up the streets on his dirt bike, thumped up the bus steps. His weasel-faced friend Zugi slinked and snickered close behind. He gave Gus a hard shove, and Gus, not expecting it, lost his balance and tipped forward. His hand slammed hard against the corner of our seat. The vibration shot straight up through my spine. I stopped breathing and waited. Please, 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 please go away, my brain pleaded. My body did nothing at all, like usual. But not Antonia. She shoved Gus back with both hands. Watch out, jerk, she said. Gus stared at her for a second like he couldn't figure out what spaceship she just beamed down from. Then he snorted and said, smell you later, but he still backed off. Now it was my turn to stare at Antonia. I couldn't believe how easily she'd done that. Most of the time I was embarrassed how Antonia had her filters off, like Mom would say. She'd just blurt out whatever rolled through her brain at any, at any given moment, usually the worst possible one. Like the time in the grocery store parking lot when Antonia gawked at a very large woman with low-riding pants wrestle a 50-pound bag of dog food into the back of her VW Bug. Mom, she said in a shout you could hear halfway across the lot. You see that lady showing your big butt? I bet you could stick a couple of quarters in there like a gumball machine. I'd never known my mom's face could turn that shade of red. But this was different. The way Antonia handled Gus was excellent. Maybe the day wouldn't be so bad after all. Maybe having Antonia act as a buffer at lunch could actually work. She'd say all the things I never dared to say. The icy fingers wiggled free a little. I may have even smiled. Then the bus jerked to a stop at the corner of Maine and Little, and the bus doors whooshed open once again. A pair of hard heels click-click-clicked up the steps. A whiff of cherry and cinnamon tickled the air. My smile, if it ever was there, vanished. Madison Underwood appeared, filling the aisle like a rolling thunderhead. And those icy fingers reached up through my throat, clamped on my brain, and dragged it down to my stomach. Madison, Maddie to her friends, was as flashy and polished as a new bicycle. Her rosy skin, straight white teeth, and glossy nails gleamed, and her smooth black hair flowed easily over her shoulders. Everyone looked at her, including me, and she knew it. Her eyes soaked up all the adoration. But when those copper-brown eyes found mine, the pleasure drained away and all that was left was pure poison. All for me. Keep moving there, honey, the bus driver said. Madison gave me a half second's worth of eye venom, then turned to the bus driver and smiled. Sorry, Mrs. Hamish, Madison said in her sugary, finger-wrapping voice. Mrs. Hamish, like every other adult, returned her smile. Madison breezed down the aisle, followed by her giggling twin minions, Ashley and Greta Oslo. As the trio passed, I let out the breath I'd been holding. It was over. The worst moment of the morning bus ride, the one I'd been dreading and trying not to think about, was over. There'd be other bad moments waiting for me at school, but at least I could check this one off the list. That's what I told myself. And like usual, I was wrong. Wow, she's as pretty as a lollipop, Antonia said. Very loudly. I stiffened, feeling the scorch of Madison's stare as she took in the loud girl with the sparkly duckling barrette and the clearance-aisle red panda shirt, the one sitting next to me. "'Hi, I'm Antonia,' my sister continued, answering a question no one had asked. "'I'm Lucy's sister.' My throat clenched tight. I wanted to reach out and grab Antonia by the neck and shake her until her brains rattled, screaming, "'Shut up! Shut up!' I couldn't have done it, though. In fact, that would be breaking the first and most important of my middle school survival rules. Rule number one, never speak to anyone except adults, and then only if they ask you a direct question. The rules could never be broken, no matter what. I heard a snort and a breathy laugh, and then Madison's heels clicked away down the aisle. 
a comet followed them just loud enough for me and the adoring crowd in the back seats. Did you see the fish eyes on Trash Licker Jr.? The backseat crowd let loose with a laugh particular to middle schoolers, the kind that could strip the paint from concrete. Antonia shook my elbow. Why is everybody laughing? she asked. Who's Trash Licker Jr.? I didn't answer her, even when she started pinching my arm. My eyes had closed. It wasn't perfectly black behind my lids because of the dancing sunspots, but it would do. If I couldn't see the world, then the world couldn't see me either. I knew it was stupid and childish. But for a few moments, I pretended I was all alone in the world. No other kids, no school, especially no Antonia. It didn't matter if in about 15 minutes I'd have to open my eyes again with a whole rotten year ahead of me. For 15 minutes, I could pretend none of that mattered. So while Antonia poked and prodded at me, asking me to explain what was so funny, I shut down and disappeared. That's what I did best. Chapter 4 Look at all this, Antonia said, gawking at the cafeteria like it was the Grand Canyon. Her pink kitten backpack was still overloaded and slung pointlessly on her shoulder. I wondered if she'd taken it off since the morning. Her eyes darted in every direction, and she swiveled her head back and forth like an automatic sprinkler. This is way bigger than my old school. Somehow I'd managed to get through the morning classes without anyone really noticing or caring I was there. I'd snagged Antonia as she spilled out of her reading intensive and dragged her to the cafeteria before too much of a line formed. Only seven kids in front of us. I closed my eyes and breathed. Four, five, seven, six, four, five, seven, six, four, five, seven, six, I kept repeating in my head. My lunch ID number, the one I'd need to punch into the keypad to pay for my meal, was the same one I'd had last year, but I wasn't taking any chances. Do we have an assigned table? Can we sit where we want? Do they have pepperoni pizza? The questions tumbled out faster than I could handle. Not that I'd tried to give Antonia any answers. I just grabbed a tray for her and one for myself and slid mine along the metal bars. Now only four stood in line ahead of us. A damp hamburger and a dish of slightly green tater tots cowered miserably on my tray. The smell of floor cleaner and grease left over from 1964 combined into some unnatural fumes. More than likely it caused brain damage, which would explain a lot about middle school. Antonia was still jabbering away about something or other. I figured if I at least got us to the lunch table, she could jabber on all she wanted. I'd make an excuse later about why no one sat with us, why my eyes stay locked on my tray and never looked up except to check the slowest clock in the world, and why I never said a word to anyone. Four, five, seven, six, four, five, seven, six, take one hamburger, one dish of tater tots, one dish of peas, one milk, one fork, one napkin, punch in the number, walk to the round table, sit, eat, Wait, four, five, seven, six, four, five, seven, six. I had the drill down cold. In five minutes, we'd sit down. After 37 more, lunch would finally be over. Sometimes eaten, sometimes not. I usually felt less queasy when it wasn't. 94 minutes after that, the school day would end. 25 minutes later, we'd hear the whoosh of the bus doors close behind us. And 16 hours later, the whole ordeal would start all over again. Whoopee. Four, five, seven, six. Four, five, seven, six. Four, five, seven, six. Antonia tugged at my sleeve. Lucy, 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 she chanted in her much too loud voice. Which one's our table? Huh? Tell me. Where do you and your friends sit? Friends, a familiar voice said from farther down the lunch line. What friends? No, no, no. Please, no. I didn't have to turn around to recognize Madison's snarl. The snorting noises that followed every nasty word she spat out had to be Ashley and Greta. I tried not to listen, but the words still found me and drilled right into my brain. Who wants to be friends with trash liquor? She smells like cat puke. Oh, Maddie, you're so mean. So mean. I peeked a glance at Antonia to see how she was taking this, but she was oblivious. Fine by me. The icy fingers, though, were squeezing the breath out of my lungs. 
5476, 5476, 5476, please, please. It's true. Even Bug-Eyed Trash Liquor Jr. smells like it. That's because cat pukes all they can find at the dump. The dump? Gross. Ew. Shut up, shut up. 4576, 4576, 4576. Only one person ahead of us. All I had to do was punch in the lunch code and I'd be set. Madison and her followers always clustered near the long row of windows, far, far away from my table. She could trash talk me all she wanted from there. We wouldn't hear a word of it. Even so, the icy fingers squeezed harder and harder with every breath I sucked in. Four five seven six, four five seven six, four five seven six. They go there every night for dinner, eating cat puke and rat heads. No, gross. You don't mean for real. Is that for real? Ew. Finally, I reached the register. A sharp pain stabbed between my eyes. Everything was blurry. My shaking fingers paused before the keypad. Okay, okay. Four seven five six, four seven five six. My heart skipped a beat. Wait, were those the right numbers? Is it four five six? No, four seven? No, what is it? What is it? Put them in already. The lunch lady at the cash register, new to me, wore too much makeup and looked bored. Mrs. Dudley was scrawled on her name tag and magic marker. My fingers couldn't stop shaking. Those four numbers, the same ones I'd been punching in day after day for a whole year, had suddenly dissolved. Put them in already, Madison mocked in a high voice. The twins snickered. You want me to do it? Antonia asked. She reached over and banged keypad buttons at random. Stop that, Mrs. Dudley snapped. She grabbed Antonia by the wrist and swung it away. You're holding up the line. If you don't know your credit code, lunch is $3.45. Nuh-uh, Antonia said, blowing on her wrist. Not for us. We don't have to pay anything. We get our lunch for free. Mrs. Dudley raised her eyebrows. Laughter ran down the line, and the icy fingers reached up and grabbed me by the throat. We'd been on the free lunch program since arriving at Anega Valley because Mom's pay was so low. So were a quarter of the kids in the school. But no one bragged about it. No one ever talked about it. Because if you let a certain kind of person know you're poor, they can turn mean. Ugly mean. Hear that? Mrs. Dudley said over her shoulder in a very loud voice. She gets her lunch for free. Two beady eyes and a hairnet appeared in a small window behind Mrs. Dudley. They disappeared for a moment, then popped back into view. She's 4576, a husky voice growled from the back, and her sister's 3827. I banged the numbers in frantically one after the other and took my tray for the lunch line. I hoped Antonia was following me, but I didn't dare look. Think they don't have to pay for nothing, Mrs. Dudley grumbled as I slunk away. Maybe somebody at home should try working for a change. My hand shook even after I sat down at the round table. Antonia, who thankfully had followed after me, set down her tray next to me. She didn't sit, though. She remained standing with her head tilted to one side, staring back at the lunch line. Why'd that lady say that? she asked. Sit down, I whispered. But why'd she say that? Please sit down, I whispered again, as loud as I dared. Antonia finally sat, but her eyes never left the lunch line. Mom works, she said. I nudged the pile of green-tinged tater tots around with a plastic spoon. I know, I said quietly. Eat your lunch. Works hard every day. Antonia faced me. Her cheeks were colored a blotchy pink. She don't know nothing about Mom. I squeezed my eyes shut and gritted my teeth. Please, I begged her, let it go. Antonia scowled. Then she took off her backpack, propped it in her lap, and buried her face in it. I could hear her mumbling something, but I wasn't going to make a scene about it. Of all the different ways I'd played out this day's lunchtime in my head, I never planned for this. Why did I let Madison get to me like that? She didn't say anything she hadn't said a hundred times before, and worse. Why couldn't Antonia keep her big mouth shut? Mom was always going on about how I should be more patient with her because she couldn't help the way she was. Sometimes I wondered if Antonia didn't take advantage of her helplessness more than Mom realized. 
None of that mattered now. I didn't look up, but I could feel dozens and dozens of eyes zeroed in on us. The stupid girl who wouldn't talk to anyone, and her crazy loudmouthed sister who was moaning into her baby backpack. A couple of pathetic losers. Trash Licker and Trash Licker Jr. My eyes started to burn. Please don't cry. Please don't cry. I pleaded silently, even as the sobs rose up my throat. Then the table suddenly jerked and banged into my ribs. I swallowed the sob and opened my eyes, ready to glare at Antonia for her clumsiness, which was about all I could do. What I didn't expect was the sight of the big, goofy grin plastered all over my sister's face. This is going to be good, she said. Antonia shoved aside her lunch tray, planted her backpack on the table with a thud, and rested her chin on it, all the while still grinning like a cat with a mouse under each paw. Now I was really worried. She must have snapped under the pressure and lost her mind. I couldn't blame her. It was a miracle the same thing hadn't happened to me a long time ago. Antonia, I started, but she held up her hand. Watch, she said. You'll see. You'll see? A vision of Antonia bolting out of her chair to tackle Mrs. Dudley and shove carrot sticks up the lunch lady's nose wandered through my brain. Part of me dreaded it. Another part of me wondered how far she could jam them up there before someone pulled her off. But Antonia didn't move. She just sat there grinning her big dumb grin and drumming her fingers. What on earth does she think's going to happen? I pretended not to care, deciding that lining up my shriveled peas in groups of three was the most useful thing I could do. Let her sit there and grin all she wants. Nothing's going to happen. And for the second time that day... I was dead wrong. I heard it before I saw it, like the rumble of a distant train. A strange clattering rang out from the lunch line. I turned to see what the commotion was. Mrs. Dudley stood by the large aluminum basket, holding the half pints of milk and chocolate milk. Mrs. Dudley stood by the large aluminum basket, holding the half pints of milk and chocolate milk. Her face was pinched with confusion. No wonder... The milk basket was rattling and shaking and bouncing from side to side, the cartons flipping and knocking into each other. Nobody was touching it. Mrs. Dudley reached out a finger to touch the basket. It clanged loudly. She drew back her finger quickly, like she'd been given a shock. Emma? Something's wrong with the milk, Mrs. Dudley said, trying to sound calm and not succeeding very well. I already checked the expiration dates, the husky voice called out from the back. No, I don't mean the milk's gone bad, Mrs. Dudley said. It's... it's moving. What? I said, bang! The aluminum basket jumped out of its metal slot about a foot, hovered for a second, then slammed back down. Mrs. Dudley shrieked. By this time, every head in the lunchroom had turned to watch. No one said a word. No one moved. The basket leaped up a second time. Mrs. Dudley grabbed it on both sides and tried to shove it back down. The milk basket didn't budge from its place in midair. Stop it! Stop it! she yelled. It slammed down a second time, then started bouncing up and down more rapidly, going a little bit higher each time. Mrs. Dudley's face changed from pasty fear to tomato-red rage. She kept her hand clamped tight to the basket, even when it leaped so high she was barely standing on her tiptoes, bellowing out words not exactly school-appropriate. Antonia punched me lightly on the arm. Here we go, she said. Before I could ask what she meant, the basket dropped down and the banging stopped. The room went completely quiet, except for Mrs. Dudley's heavy breathing. She hunched over the basket, with her hands gripping the sides. Thick veins stuck out on her neck, and a satisfied look of victory spread across her red, sweaty face. Got you, she wheezed. And that's when the milk exploded. Every carton burst open at the top and shot its contents straight into Mrs. Dudley's startled face like wet fireworks. The volley of milk hit her so hard she was thrown a foot in the air. She rode the brown and white wave for a moment until gravity took over, and she fell back on her bottom with a huge, damp plop. Even after she landed, a downpour of white and chocolate milk continued to rain on her. She didn't move or try to get out of the way. 
She just sat there blinking with her mouth open, sitting in a huge, swirly lake of milk. Finally, the last of it sputtered out of the cartons. For about five seconds, there was complete silence, except for the drip, drip of milk from her hairnet and the click of the minute hand on the wall clock. Then Mrs. Dudley screamed. After that, it was chaos. Kids doubled up with laughter while adults burst into the lunchroom and ran in every direction, shouting and pointing fingers and sometimes slipping in the milky puddles pooled up and down the lunch line. It was the strangest thing I'd ever seen. But what was even stranger was how Antonia sat there the whole time, clutching her backpack to her stomach, rocking back and forth, smiling like she'd never stop smiling the rest of her life. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can find the Dream Gardens podcast website at jleemott.com and my author website at jodyleemott.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at dreamgardensjlm. The Dream Gardens podcast is available through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.